Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I've got some bad news. It started as writing. And right from the beginning, you knew this was different. Because it was happening in small villages, market towns. And then it wasn't on the TV anymore. It was in the street outside. It was coming through your windows. It was a virus. Infection. You didn't need a doctor to tell you that. It was the blood. Or something in the blood. By the time they tried to evacuate the cities, it was already too late. The infection was everywhere. The army blockades were overrun. And that's when the extras started. The day before the TV and radio stopped broadcasting, there were reports of infection in Paris and New York. We didn't hear anything more after that. What about the government? What are they doing? There's no government. Of course there's a government. There's always a government. They're in a, a bunker or a plane. No, there's no government, no police, no army. No TV, no radio, no electricity. You're the first uninfected person we've seen in six days. All right, that is from uh, 28 Days Later. Uh, and so actually when interns, well, first of all, back in the days when we all worked in a building to do, <laughs> to do this show, um, we work on the third floor. And when the interns, the new interns would show up, I would always sit them down and have this very serious talk with them about how on the second floor of this building, we lease space to DARPA. Uh, for experiments involving chimps and rage virus and under no circumstances were they to get off the elevator on the second floor or go down the stairs to the second floor and, you know, curiosity killed the cat and all that kind of stuff and ha ha. And um, I don't know that that's going to be funny anymore. <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to be giving that speech in the future. Uh, that, of course, that clip was from 28 Days Later, which kind of sets up that particular idea. I should say that this show is kind of a sequel to one we did a few years ago, which was called, Which Dystopia Are We Living In Anyway? It's called something like that. Uh, and I mean, we should have to do another one now, obviously, because I can't even really remember what we concluded during the last show. But whatever it was, we kind of got it wrong. We didn't see this coming. Uh, not to say that this is a dystopia, but close enough. So on the show today, we'll be talking about writers. We're talking to writers also who have thought a lot about this, either in retrospect or with foresight. We will actually be talking to a writer who did a story uh, that involved uh, people stuck at home during a pandemic, baking and worrying about groceries and doing a lot of cooking at home. Uh, and we'll be talking to Ben Winters, uh, a novelist we've worked with a lot in the past, who kind of specializes in this kind of thing. Although his big specialty is asteroid about to hit the, hit the Earth. So uh, 
But anyway, we're going to begin with Lori Penny, an author, columnist, journalist, and screenwriter. Uh, her, oh, oh, I should also say before we bring Lori aboard, I'm under orders to remind people that when I saw 28 Days Later, I saw it with my friend Bill Curry, and I was so terrified by it. Not so much because of the pandemic, but because of the jump scares. Um, but I was so terrified by it that I was making all kinds of little bird-like cheeping noises in my seat. And uh, Bill Curry said that he would never go see a movie with me ever again. Uh, so there you go. Uh, these things are very scary. All right, let me go back to introducing the guest. The guest is Lori Penny, uh, author, columnist, journalist, screenwriter. Her piece last month for Wired is, This is not the apocalypse you were looking for. And she joins us by, via the miracle of Skype. Uh, Lori Penny, welcome to our show. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing just fine under the circumstances. So for the benefit of people who have not had the pleasure of reading your piece, explain what you mean. This is not the apocalypse you were looking for. Well, um, I've written a lot about apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic thought and the idea of the end of the world. And um, when all of this started happening, um, one thing that struck me was that, um, you know, most of the time when people imagine apocalypse, which we have been doing so much, especially in the past 10 years as a culture, we have just been, there have been so many end of the world post-apocalyptic stories. Um, they didn't, most people don't anticipate any, any, just any kind of middle ground between things that are completely normal and Everything is, everything is, I'm, I'm trying not to swear, to swear, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, <laughs> everything is over. Like, you know, 28 Days Later, which we just had, which is a fantastic film. Um, you know, it starts, most of these stories start when it's already game over. Society is completely gone. There's no government. There's nothing. Um, you just have to, you know, you have to fight to survive. And the story of, uh, the story of 28 Days Later is fight to survive. And, um, kill as many of the monsters as you can and if somebody around you gets infected they'll always become a monster and you just have to kill them like that awful i don't know if um all of our listeners have uh, seen it but i will never forget that scene in 28 days later where the dad gets infected and he has about two minutes to say goodbye to his daughter oh god <laughs> i haven't seen that film for about 10 years and i still remember it and um, but instead um there is this wonderful quote by my friend Quinn Norton, who's a fantastic journalist and commentator. And what she said was, look, people think when the world ends that we'll all start eating each other. And actually what happens is we all start feeding each other. And um, that was ringing in my head for a couple of days. And that's partly why I wrote this piece. Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's a little of both, right? I mean, and, and yes, uh, that eating each other, I mean, not even just because we're zombies. I mean, now that The Walking Walking Dead has been on the air for, you know, 85 years or whatever it is. I mean, it's increasingly clear with each passing season that the danger is not the zombies. The danger is the, yeah. people, the people who are not zombies. And mm -hmm. that, that runs through it. You can sort of see it in Children of Men, too, where the struggle to kill anything is over. Uh, the, the, the whole question is, you know, what sort of group of human beings are left can we repopulate the earth? What sorts of people do we wind up dealing with? Who's in charge? Uh, those kinds of things. And and this situation has a little bit of the elements of those things as well as the feeding people part of it. Wouldn't you agree? Well, look, um, 
extreme situations and crises tend to tend to make people well they tend to reveal character they tend to show people how they really are Mm -hmm. and um and and look a lot of people um a lot of people are you know are being their best selves and some people are being their worst selves which is always what's going to happen as well i think the thing that feels most frightening to people and i i think it's very interesting that you picked that clip um the one where he's uh, the, the the poor guys and there is no government and actually um right now um the governments of the i'm from britain as you can probably tell mm-hmm. and um and uh, the governments of britain and the uk are sing there is a um, there is a singular dereliction of duty it is shocking how much they are messing it up um and it's clear that we are we're led by people who never wanted to be leaders they just wanted to be rulers and actually that's not happening because of this crisis that's happening because of the people that we elected um and uh, you know it's clear that in, um, in in other countries where they have different styles of leadership and they have different styles of government, um, the crisis is not the same crisis that we're having in the UK and that they're having in in in. So I, I keep talking like I'm still at home where I'm meant to be. I'm I'm stuck <laughs> in LA at the moment. Um, but you know the the crisis is not the same in New Zealand, for example, as it is in the United States and in the UK, where uh, people were just not, they were not prepared in any way to um, to face a collective crisis of this nature. But one thing I think is important to point out for listeners is um, because, you know, in my work as a journalist, but I also have, you know, like a culture commentator, I do a lot of reading about this stuff. And post-apocalyptic stories have always been with us, mm-hmm. right? Um, and actually there is this idea called catastrophism where people, you know, in times of crisis, in times of huge change, people tend to imagine the end of the world over and over and over. And this goes right back to, you know, to early Christian times. It goes right back to, you know, if you look at all the stuff around the English Civil War, um, which not a lot of people know about, there were tons and tons of books and uh, plays about the end of the world, apocalypse. And, um, because people couldn't necessarily people wanted to imagine something different a different way of living but they couldn't they couldn't imagine anything beyond what they were allowed to imagine in the present and um, there was this famous quote that started going around uh, 10 years ago actually um by Frederick Jameson um we were just saying it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. <laughs> this I don't know if you remember the Occupy movement. I was uh, oh, kind yeah. of involved in that. Yeah, yeah, and um, and that started going around a lot because you know for the first ten years of this century, there were significantly more post-apocalyptic and end of the world stories made than in the entirety of the century before. You know, this became this has always been with us, but this obsession just became ramped up and ramped up, and every story we were we were seeing was you know post-apocalyptic this and I don't know about you, but you were talking about you know the game you played with your interns, um. You know, talking about the end of the world and what we're all going to do in the zombie apocalypse, it became sort of like a normal part of conversation. But actually, um, and I just found it interesting that it's it's easier to imagine the total collapse of everything than it is to imagine a different way of living, a different way of organising the society that we already have. Something that might be really incredibly different, but might not necessarily be worse in every way. And of course, that's you know, it's a it's a difficult thing to say right now because 
you know, this is this crisis is awful. It's really, really awful. And um, all kinds of minor and major tragedies are going on. But there is an aspect to this which no one expected, the aspects whereby, you know, life continues to some extent. And life can, and I think, um, well, certainly in the UK, I saw a study recently, which um, was that something like, I would have to check this, um, but something like 80% of British people who are in lockdown, and most of them are, apart from the NHS workers, are, um, they don't want to go back to the way things were before. Mm. And by the way things were before, they mean, you know, the, the system of work and government. They were they were unhappy with the way things were. And in some ways, lockdown has made them reassess their lives and reassess the kind of the kind of country they want to live in, which um, which I think is um, is not entirely bad news. You know, there's a way, Laurie, in which fiction and culture interrogate reality and reality interrogates mm-hmm. fiction. So, you know, I'm a little bit older. Actually, I'm a lot older than you are. But uh, during the L.A. riots around Rodney King, commentator after commentator on all the TV news stations, they were saying this is like Blade Runner. Um, and during the, col- during the collapse of Somalia, um, where you had, you know, a lot of warring tribes driving around kind of desert terrains with jeeps with machine guns mounted on them and stuff like that. Commentator after TV commentator would say, uh, this is like the road warrior. Um, and there, there's a way in which we do that, right? We, we haven't seen the Black Plague in the 1300s, but we've seen the movie Contagion. So, there, so when we experience something like this, one of the things that we do is turn to cultural sources and say, okay, what the hell is this like that I ever have seen? So I'll just let yeah. you ramp, uh, no, just riff on that. <laughs> but actually, I mean, yes, we have, look, people go to their cultural references when something massive and scary happens, but People also, um, like the, the role of stories is also as trauma rehearsal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think we can all agree that for the past 10, 20 years or more, there has been a sense that, look, people have been talking about, oh, God, this is the end of the world. This is the end times. We're all going to die. That's been a major part of a lot of people's conversation mm-hmm. for, uh, for quite a while. And um, because there is a sense that things are collapsing, things are getting worse, the environment is falling apart, nobody's going to do anything. You know, I, um, you know, I graduated from university right in the teeth of the financial crisis, which, um, you know, which, which, which upended every certainty that um, young middle class people had grown up with. Um, And there's, you know, all these, all these awful things that we'd heard might happen. And there was a sense that we're kind of getting ourselves ready for that. Because when you see people going through something in a story, and a story is, things, the thing about a story, a film, a book, is that it's predictable, it has a predictable shape, you can put yourself in the position of these people. And even if it all turns out terribly, like it does in 28 Days Later, I mean, you look, you know, from the beginning of that film, that there's really not many good ways that that can end. Right? Right. But, um, you know, because you see people going through it in a story, you feel like maybe, you know, maybe I might be able to get through it too. Maybe my, uh, you know, my friends, my family might be able to get through it too. And this is even in, you know, in young, young adult literature, there's a huge craze for dystopia, you know, starting with the Hunger Games, but there's all kinds of things like that. How will we cope in a future society which is fascist, which is deliberately cruel in all these ways? And, um, and it's funny that the kinds of trauma we prepared for didn't necessarily leave a lot of room 
for people being good, for people being kind, for people being silly. Yeah. Um, there has been such wonderful silliness um, since this started. Um, I'm one of the many, many people in their early 30s who has suddenly discovered TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the people, you know, I, I, I go onto TikTok every day and there are NHS workers, um, the National Health Service in the UK, um, who are complete heroes, who are, I, I saw this thing the other day, and um, they, they'd made a little video in a local hospital in Britain of uh, all the um, all the uh, NHS workers getting into their PPE, their protective equipment, of course, of which there's a shortage of that, which the British government could have done something to stop, and they didn't. Um, but they're getting into what, what gear they have, and they've set it in slow motion. Some genius has filmed it and set it in slow motion to that song, you know, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that take a look at my love. And it's so, it's so funny. There is something about it that is so joyous and funny, even in the middle of these awful times. And that's the bit that these films never seem to anticipate. And I think some of it is because, I mean, look, I've, uh, there's a bit of post-apocalyptic fantasy which is also wish fulfillment, right? Mm-hmm. The wish fulfillment aspect is not that you want this terrible thing to happen, right? The wish fulfillment aspect is that all of the things, all the stresses in your life, all of the things about society that are beating you down will suddenly go away and you can... You, you can be yourself in a different way. You can, you can, you know, provide for it. It's often a very male fantasy, I have to say. The fantasy being that, you know, you'll be back to nature and you'll be a real man and you'll be like, you know, protecting your family and it'll all be about fighting. I see this a lot on um, some of the internet forums that you get dragged into when you write about women's issues on the internet. You know, all these people going, you know, when the apocalypse comes, women will be grateful again. Men will be real men and women will be grateful and you'll need protection. And, you know, this is not what's, it's not what's happening because actually what you know what I say in my piece is the work that really needs to be done in this apocalypse and I'll explain what I mean by apocalypse in a second before you bring in your next guest mm-hmm. um, the work that is being done that's really important is the work of care it's the work of looking after people and it's doctor the real heroes are not fighters you know, they're doctors, they're service workers, they're cleaners, they're, you know, people in the family who are cooking and keeping everything together, friend groups. These, it, it's the work of care. It's not the work of cruelty. And um, But I uh, think also, Laurie, I think some of the fantasy that people have also is, uh, I mean, there's a way in which uh, there was a writer and scholar named Fred File who used to use the mm-hmm. term end of the world fun for you and me. There's this kind of <laughs> sense that, you know, we're not the people who are going to die in the first 15 minutes, the so-called red shirts in Star Trek. You yep. know, we're we're the people who are going to be around at the end. Uh, and And one of the problems with that, of course, when you wind up in a real situation mm-hmm. is you assume that you are that person. That person is going to be around all the way through. So actually, uh, in Italy, uh, there was a case where an official uh, chastised people. Um, uh, well, anyway, we'll, we'll give you a, a sense of this. Oh, this is, this is a, we're going to play a little clip from I Am Good. Legend. My name is Robert Neville. I'm a survivor living in New York City. I am broadcasting on all AM frequencies. I will be at the South Street Seaport every day at midday when the sun is highest in the sky. If you are out there, if anyone is out there, 
I can provide food. I can provide shelter. I can provide security. If there's anybody out there, anybody, please, you are not alone. Ho incontrato un nostro concittadino che amabilmente faceva la corsetta su e giù per la strada accompagnato da un cane visibilmente stremato. L'ho fermato e gli ho detto guarda che questo non è un film, tu non sei Will Smith in Io sono leggenda, quindi passa pa' casa. You might have heard the words of Will Smith in there. That's uh, Giuseppe Falcomata, the 36-year-old mayor of Reggio Calabria uh, in southern Italy. And what he's saying is, I saw someone happily jogging along with a visibly exhausted dog. I told him, this is not a film. You are not Will Smith in I Am Legend. Go home now. And, and so, Lori, that's sort of back to your point, uh, that idea anyway, that if you're watching one of these apocalyptic movies and there's a man and a dog, that's who you think you are. You don't think you're one of the people already dead. And, and you may sort of try to live that hero fantasy out uh, in the reality. God, I love, and, and, and of course, that's completely not the skill set that we know. God, I love those Italian mayors. I love that they're, you know, and also, I mean, like your mayors in the, your mayors in the USA, like, because I live in LA and um, we've been watching Garcetti on the TV and I think he's great, honestly, but I also, he, you do tend to go in for like the bombast and the rhetoric and it's like this, our great city has weathered this and that and, you know, we and the American, I'm like, oh God, this is a bit much, isn't it? I think there's a, there's a there's a there's a national style for every kind of leadership and i love the fact that the mayors of italy their style is just going out and shouting at people i saw another one where this the local mayor was just going out and he found some people playing ping pong it's like what is this are you crazy no ping pong for you go home to your playstation <laughs> i'm like yes yes it's amazing but yeah look um the idea of um i think Uh, the kind of heroism that we're really seeing in this crisis is not the kind of heroism that most post-apocalyptic fantasies imagine. I would put an addendum in there, though. I would say most post-apocalyptic fantasies, particularly the ones that make it to screen and are really popular, are written in a certain kind of storytelling style, and they're written mostly by men. They star mostly men. Um, they star mostly white men and Will Smith, as it happens. Um, and... Uh, And it's about, and again, like, you know, Robert, this guy, Robert, you know, he's like the only one left. He's the provider. He will provide if there's anyone out there. And actually, um, you there are a lot, there are also a lot of post-apocalyptic novels written by women and particularly by women of color. And they tend to have a slightly different, not always, but they tend to have a slightly different attitude about the apocalypse and about, because what they, what they see um, which i think a lot of women particularly women of color understand from the start is that look when the world starts falling apart it's not going to be mad max it's not going to be um you know, road warrior or 28 days later what it's going to be it's not going to be like men fighting each other for the last scraps of society what it's going to be is a lot of people mostly women at the start trying to pick up the pieces trying to keep everyone together and look after everyone and you know the heroes in all of this in this you know, in this crisis, they're not all men. It's a pretty, it's a pretty neat gender balance because everybody is using the caring skills that, you know, that, that are, you know, that are innate to them. It's, um, 
I mean, before we bring on the next guest, I would love to like point out that, you know, there is a difference. If you look back at the root of the word between the word apocalypse and words like calamity or catastrophe or end of the world, going right back to like the Bible, the book of Revelation is, is about an apocalypse. The word apocalypse literally means revelation. It doesn't mean the end of everything. It means, you know, a crisis, which is an opportunity for great and deep change. Uh, could be good change, could be bad change. But, um, yeah, the book of Revelation is not just about everything ending. It's about everything changing and all truths being revealed. And I do think that... Um, that this crisis is revealing a lot of truths about the different societies we live in. Right. And that's a perfect segue into our break. When we come back, we are going to talk about with the, about a very distinct example of fiction telling us a story about feeding each other rather than eating each other. Uh, we've got a lot of other things to talk about. And Laurie Penny is going to stay with us. You'll meet another writer after this. There are stories circulating on the internet that in India and elsewhere, the drug ribavirin has been shown to be effective against this virus. Yet, Homeland Security is telling the CDC not to make any announcements until stockpiles of the drug can be secured. Well, Dr. Gupta, there continue to be evaluations of several drugs. Ribavirin is among them. But right now, our best defense has been social distancing. No handshaking, staying home when you're sick, washing your hands frequently. Uh, Alan, uh, today on Twitter, you, you wrote that the truth about this virus is being kept from the world by the CDC, by the World Health Organization. Uh, there are therapies we know are effective right now, like forsythia, and they don't even appear on the CDC website. The CDC is exploring forsythia and other homeopathic treatments, but right now there's no science to back any of these claims. What we do know is that in order to become sick, you have to first come in contact with a sick person or something that they touched. In order to get scared, all you have to do is come in contact with a rumor or the television or the Internet. I think what Mr. Crumwoody is, uh, is spreading is far more dangerous than the disease. All right. So obviously one thing that we're learning here is anytime Jude Law is in the vicinity, things are really about to take a very bad turn towards the abyss. Uh, that, of course, is from the movie Contagion. Uh, the only thing that they got wrong was they didn't have the guy who was spreading the forsythia and dubious other uh, remedies be the president of the United States. They would have completely nailed it. And also, the guy who plays Sanjay Gupta is terrific. I mean, he just nails him. Uh, all right. Joining us uh, still, Laurie Penny, uh, author, columnist, journalist, screenwriter, or her piece uh, last month for Wired is This Is Not the Apocalypse You Were Looking For. Joining us now, uh, talk about nailing it. Uh, Naomi Kritzler is a science fiction and fantasy writer. Her newest novel, Catfishing on Catnet, won the Edgar Award for Best Young Adult Novel Like Today. That's why you hear champagne corks Ooh. going off in the background. Um, <laughs> And um, so before we get to this kind of amazing piece that we should say that Naomi, in order to 
uh, cynically exploit the current tragedy, traveled back in time, wrote a piece in 2015 uh, that based where she just just took all the stuff that she found out now and and uh, and then came back to be on the show. Uh, but before we do all this, we should say a word or two uh, about Contagion. And uh, Naomi, I think you watched it maybe even like last night or so. Uh, yes. Just give, give me a quick reaction. I the 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 main thing I remember thinking watching it was that with a 24-hour incubation period um, and and symptoms that are so clear and so deadly, they should have been able to contain it. All right. So <laughs> this, you may be overthinking it. I don't know if it's possible to overthink contagion, but almost the, certainly. Yeah. Given, well, given the amount of research that you've done, and I'm actually starting the Lawrence Wright novel right now, which uh, is called The End of October, which just came out, and and also has you know, a remarkable amount of thought put into the virology of it. And, and uh, that might be a pretty good segue just into your piece where in 2015, you published a story called So Much Cooking. Um, I'll let you describe what the premise of this was. So the, the premise of the story is it's a it's a food blog um, that written by, you know, the, the sort of chatty flute food blogger who like tells you everything that's going on in her life before she gets to the recipes. Um, and only what's going on around her is uh, is a pandemic, and it's a novel flu pandemic. Uh, her city is a hotspot, and over the course of the story, she takes in an increasing numbers of kids whose parents are at risk in some way and who want the kids in a safe, uh, sheltered environment where no one is leaving the house. It starts with her, her two nieces, uh, and then she brings in like some friends of the nieces and then some friends of the friends. And she ends up with like seven kids in a bungalow and her husband. Um, and uh, through this, they have like food shortages because like they can't get to the grocery store. And also trucks are no longer coming into the city because it's a hot spot. And, um, and the whole story is told in the sort of upbeat, chatty food blogger tone. And, uh, you know, I mean, to do this, you, I mean, one of the reasons that you're nitpicking away at Contagion now is that like <laughs> any science fiction writer, whether it's you or Lawrence Wright, who typically is not a science fiction writer, but is doing something, is you did a lot of research. So just in the same sense that the word social distancing appears in that clip, I think we hear Lawrence Fishburne yeah. saying it in Contagion, you, you had encountered that term just to get ready to write a piece uh, about somebody cooking their way through a pandemic. You, you had to know a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I looked up. You know, it's not like it's not like people didn't think about this. You know, there mm -hmm. there was a lot of a lot of planning and discussion that went into you know what would happen if something like the nineteen eighteen flu pan you know flu started spreading. Um, people thought about this for years and years and years and talked about different strategies for mitigating and for handling and suppressing and everything. And yeah, social distancing was a term I found when I did my research, um, and. Uh, yeah. So, and I think, um, well, ironically, shortly before you came on the air here, because this this piece is this uh, this story is about one of the things that a lot of people are dealing with right now. Where do you get food? How do you get food? Mm -hmm. Everybody's dealing with it, even despite all the research that you did for this story. You still didn't remember to get matzah. Uh, right. So, um, <laughs> Uh, and I, ironically, right before you came on, uh, listeners could hear a dog barking loudly. And that was my dog, Declan, who was barking at the people who were delivering 
the wine. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so everybody's dealing with this now. But it, it isn't, yeah. you know, it, it, this goes back to Lori's point, and we're going to bring her in and just to sit back in in just a second. But this isn't what people mostly think about, right? I mean, they don't really think about, they think about having MREs, you know, down in Will Smith's bunker. They don't really think about, like, how can I have nice food? This is true. Yeah. Um, well, although, I mean, I have a friend who uh, describes herself as a liberal prepper. And uh, she told me before, you know, back in back in February, back in early February, when, when we were first starting to hear about um, uh, about the coronavirus, uh, she said people people often think in terms of like shelf stable and MREs, and they don't think in terms of what would I like to eat. She said people should think in terms of what they like to eat. She had a whole box of things that she had set aside that was marked treats. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'll note she still has yeast, so you know she's she's doing really well um, overall in terms of like the things that there are shortages of. Uh, but. Right, and, and, know, bread, uh, and bread baking is suddenly a thing. People who have never yes. baked bread in their lives are doing it now. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually have a friend, Chris Prosperi, who's a chef who on an almost daily basis sends me a picture uh, on social media uh, of the latest mm -hmm. loaf of bread that he's, just to be a show off, I think, of these delicious looking loaves of bread. So let's bring Lori back yes. into this conversation. You know, way at the start of this show, Lori, you said the thing about how when people think about pandemic fueled dystopias, about the zombie apocalypse, they picture people eating people, they don't picture people feeding people. But it seems, yeah. Lori, as though Naomi is perhaps the exception. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's like, I don't, there is nothing reductive about talking about you know, women writers, I think, because like, as as far as I'm concerned, most of the great science fiction writers right now are women, and Naomi obviously is one of them. Um, but I think there is a certain, like, there is a more, there's a broadness of imagination um, that you see more often from women writers, because they, they're, they're not so, they're not so tied down to this sort of hyper masculine, we're all just going to fight each other and, you know, and eat each other's corpses at the end of the day at the end of the world and this um that, that short story I, I i read it when it came out and uh, and i loved it and i read it today um again and and it's it's so when it's so you get every little nuance of and and of it because look if sorry i'm babbling because i love it so much but look um one of the reasons it feels so real is that what you know what writers and stories can do is you can get you can dig deep into the actual emotions and the silliness and the, and the ev and the everyday intimacies um, of of how people behave through something like this and the the aspect of treats is so important. Um, I sort of started I started prepping for this in February because you know I'm living out here in a household with um, we're co we're co-quarantining with two other people who are on their own so there's four of us and I actually do most of the cooking um and so I'm cooking more than I have for quite a long time and there's been such a you know treats are really important we've managed to get delivery more lately but around Easter this something happened at Easter which I've got to share with you guys um so um we're actually we're actually all Jewish we don't generally celebrate Easter but um it was Easter Sunday, and um, somebody was talking on the um, on the on Twitter about scavenger hunts and Easter egg hunts. And I was like, "Oh, I used to do that as a kid." And then um, my housemates told me, "Just go go to my room for a bit. Just go sit in your room." And and uh, I wasn't allowed to come out for half an hour. And I came out, and they'd made me a scavenger hunt 
they were all so bored. Aww. They'd made like little clues. And I went, of course, we didn't have any chocolate. We didn't have anything. And like this, we had sweet treats at the end. And what it was, they'd made something from like whipped coffee and coconut cream. You literally said it in your story. They make the treat at the end from coconut cream. And it was a, like a pancake. It was like a cold pancake with some syrup on it. And um, those were the sweet treats at the end. And it was, it did, it felt like water, but it was so much fun, you know. And I'm thinking, I don't know, I, I've been thinking a lot about my grandmother at these times because um, I don't know about anybody else's family background. My, my grandmother grew up um, in Malta in um, in the Second World War. She was a teenager. And um, and uh, Malta, it's, not, it's a small island in the middle of the Mediterranean, but it was bombarded it was like the biggest civilian bombing campaign until Syria and they were starved. They were blockaded. And my grandmother always for the rest of her life after surviving that bombardment and being starved out, she hoarded food. And my grandmother was a great one for like recipes of kind of everything. Everything was used up. Nothing went to waste and cooking and like survival cooking for all of her kids was just, you know, it was a huge central part of everybody's lives for the entire rest of her life. And I think, um, but that, you know, it's like, I don't know. I feel like for our generation, we're the first generation for really quite a long time to have not until now um, at least people in the US and in the UK and, and some other places, we have not lived through a big international crisis. Like well, our, I would our say first... I, I would say in some ways, and this will get us also into our next segment where we're going to be mm. talking about the War of the Worlds, that you know, 9-11 was, for me anyway, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the warm-up for all this. Look, we have to go to a break here. Naomi Kritzer is going to stay with us, science fiction writer and fantasy writer. Um, uh, we're going to say thank you to Lori Penny. She has guided us thank through the you. first two segments. Lori, thanks for being with us. Uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. And Owen oh, Ben Winter is coming back for his I don't know, 11th appearance on our show or something like that. I saw that storm. I was right in the middle of one of those. Oh, you didn't see it like this. Those machines come up from under the ground, right? So that means they must have been buried here a long time ago. So who's driving the goddamn things? Watch the lightning. Watch it. What is that? That is them. They come down in capsules, riding the lightning into the ground, into the machines, right? You hear that? We're getting the hell out of here. All right, that's from the War of the Worlds, which actually is Steven Spielberg's response uh, to 9-11. Before I uh, kind of reignite the conversation here, let me thank Kat Pastor, who is uh, not in a bunker. She is uh, at the studios right now, keeping us on the air as our technical producer. Jonathan McNichol is the person who uh, produced uh, this show and gathered together the guests and the clips and the concepts and and, uh, all that stuff. So uh, thanks to him as well and all the people who kind of back us up in various capacities. And thanks, I, I should point out, 
out that not only did my dog Declan bark when the wine was being delivered, but the wine was being delivered by a store called the Wise Old Dog. So there is kind of a circularity to all this. So uh, on the show with us is uh, is Naomi Kritzer. Uh, she is a science fiction writer and fantasy writer. Her newest novel is Catfishing on Catnet. Just won an Edgar Award. Uh, she also wrote So Much Cooking, a story which kind of anticipates the the just incredible craving for cooking and food and 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 the the arts of the kitchen uh, in a pandemic. Ben Winters uh, is the author of 10 novels. Uh, He has a new collection of short stories, Inside Jobs, Tales from a Time of Quarantine, uh, that comes out on Audible as an original. Uh, Tomorrow I will be uh, grabbing it right away, although I'm right in the middle of the Lawrence Wright book as well. So first of all, Ben Winters, welcome back to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. Always glad to be here, Colin. Yeah, it's great to have you. So uh, I'm assuming we should say that three of Ben's uh, novels are um, about uh, a policeman who's trying to solve crimes, even as an asteroid is about to come to Earth, uh, hit Earth and uh, obliterate everything. Uh, Presumably, Ben, you know about the asteroid wearing what appeared to be uh, a protective mask uh, that whizzed by the Earth. I think it was yesterday it had its closest approach. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no totally <laughs> or it was like no thanks i'm just gonna keep moving right i'm uh i'm not interested and right it's, and but to me that was like a uh, that was my last raw nerve moment i mean i'm sitting here going through this pan- pandemic and i i punched this thing up i think it was over the weekend there's an asteroid with a mask on its face i thought all right you're just trying you're the, like the universe is gaslighting us uh well. <laughs> at, at this particular point so um i want to talk to both of you about this but um so both of you have to use your imaginations to, to, to figure out what people would do in circumstances which, when they haven't yet existed. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll go back to you for a second, Naomi. It seems, except for the toilet paper hoarding, which I'm told does appear briefly uh, in the Will Smith uh, legend movie, uh, that, I mean, you really did sort of think through. I mean, how, how does that process work? How does that, do you just think through what you would want? Or, I mean, how do you figure it out? Well, in the case of so much cooking, it really was thinking through how this would play out for me. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I looked in my own cabinets and I thought about what I would probably run out of early and what I would be scrounging with to make into meals of some kind. Um, the stuff in the bottom of your freezer and the back of the cabinet and all that that, you know, you pull out when you're, you're sort of hitting desperation. Um, and I thought, I mean, I looked into, you know, I, I researched how, um, how things would, you know, how things would work, you know, uh, obviously, you know, it was clear that if you're, if it was, it was clear just from our experiences with H1N1, um, that if you wanted to stop something from spreading, you would have to close the schools really quickly. Um, because uh, H1N1, when it arrived, spread very, very quickly through the Minneapolis public schools. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously you'd have everyone work at home if they could. And, you know, I mean, it's just, there was just a lot of stuff that I was like, obviously this is how it would have to work. Mm-hmm. And then, and then what made sense to me is sort of what would be a response? How would people, how would people pull together? What solutions would people find to these problems? Um, so in, in the story, there's a, um, there's somebody who's working outside the house, uh, who's really worried about spreading the disease to her kids. So she sleeps in her car. Um, and, uh, that's why those kids come to stay with the protagonist. So, um, 
but yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, it was a story where I really kind of started because it was I really started with you know sort of my own my own perspective and my own supplies and uh, thought <laughs> sort of thought through what. How so that and and you know Ben to that point I, I do think that there are sort of you know, this is a little bit reductive but you can kind of divide fictional and maybe real life responses to calamities and apocalypses into sort of two categories. One of them is kind of hunker down, uh, hunker in the bunker and have enough beans and MREs or maybe some really good food to eat and, and kind of nurture yourself and others and try to survive. And the other one is to kind of leap into action uh, to kind of right. do something. You feel like you should do something. And, and, and you're, you know, you did three novels about a guy who just felt like he had to keep doing stuff, even if it seemed kind of pointless under the circumstances. Maybe say a, a little about that. Well, it's just, it's so interesting because this, you know, um, the calamity that I particularly imagined for the trilogy was all about the fact that this thing was going to happen. Everyone knew that it was going to happen and there was nothing that we could do about it on the grand scale to stop it. So what do individuals do on the sort of short and medium horizon to make life either bearable or better for other people in the meantime. What I think is so unsettling about our current situation um, is just the, is the uncertainty of it. No one knows how long it's going to last. No one knows exactly what their chances are of being affected by it. And we're getting such, um, and this is the human side of it, the, the human created calamity, is that we're getting such, such um, complicated mixed messages from the various sources of authority that we would hope would be saying, here is exactly what we need to do. And instead we're getting just from our various state, local and of course federal authorities, a sort of jumble of, um, of messaging. So for each of us individually, it's just so hard to know what we're supposed to do. And that I think is part of what makes it so emotionally wrenching. It's just the day-to-day -day sense of, wait, it, how safe is it to go outside today? Um, you know, Am I allowed to go for a walk? Am I not allowed to go? Should I go to the grocery store? Am I supposed to be going to the grocery store? All of that stuff is just, it's um, it makes it, in a way, it's it's a more difficult calamity just to deal with than some of the the starker things that we've we've dealt with in fiction, where it's like, okay, an asteroid. I know exactly what that is. The whole point of my book is I know exactly what when that's going to land and what it's going to do. So how do I make my choices um, in the face of it? With this, it's you don't. It, it's it is in this weird way. It's it's this ambiguity that is the calamity. So um, real quickly, because I'm unfortunately short on time, but so you've got uh, you sort of. What do you just turned on the jets and, and came up with this uh, collection of stories that's coming out on Audible? Yeah, it comes out tomorrow. It's it's wild, and you know I had a relationship with Audible, and what you know what is part of what is so compelling about this new world of audiobooks, um, and they're doing these audio originals, which are not the stories aren't coming out in print. They're only uh, will only be on Audible, um, and I had this relationship. I had this idea, and it really the stories are not about. COVID-19, they're not about coronavirus. The, the disease is not mentioned. And the stories are about the experience of quarantine, which I think is just, aside from everything else having to do with what's going on right now, the, the experience of isolation and of people being asked to hunker down is really interesting. And the way, so it's like there's this grand human drama playing out, but there are also millions and millions of individual dramas, right? All of us having to re- shape our lives very quickly. So yes, I had this idea almost right away in the first week that I was at home um, and my family were all at home. Um, and it was just sort of like, well, what, this is really difficult for me to be working from home, but can you imagine what if I was trying to plan the crime of the century with my gang, you know? So it was really came from that impulse of like, what? And so I pitched it. They said, sure, if you can write it fast. And so I, I, 
I think I channeled a lot of anxiety and, and surplus energy into writing these stories quite quickly. Right. Uh, by the way, I give extra points to anybody who's written anything that has kind of a secessionist angle to it. That I think that would include Underground Airlines, your book, and a book Thanks. called The American War that came out right around the same time. Uh, right? It's a great book. Oh, yeah, yeah that one has everything. It has secession, virus, terrorism, and climate change. He didn't take any chances. So, and yeah. speaking of that, Naomi, um, as we are kind of running out of time, but um, you know, that's sort of a question that everybody has to deal with both as a creator and a consumer of culture now is what do I want? Like I've already read Station Eleven, so I don't have to decide whether to read it or not. <laughs> but but there mm -hmm. are these kinds of choices and I've already read American War. I don't have to decide whether to read it or not. But, you know, the, the there's an interesting question. Do people will people want to read more of this kind of thing or will they want the exact opposite? And the same for uh, those of you who create stuff. So my theory is, is that uh, most adult readers are going to want the opposite. They're going to want, they're not going to want to read about pandemics. They're not going to want to read about, um, you know, zombies and, you know, things that are pandemic related. Um, they might enjoy reading about, uh, you know, quarantine, you know, things like quarantine, things where people are stuck somewhere for, you know, and, and uncertain about the future and living in this incredible ambiguity that we're all living with. Um, uh, my theory is is that teenagers are going to want to read a story version of what they lived through. I think they are going to be much more interested in reading and processing the trauma through fiction. Um, but I I don't know. It's really hard. It's really hard to know um, what exactly people will be looking for. Um, I know that people, some people are reading, are really searching for things that are diverting and take them out of their, um, take them out of their current situation and give them something completely different to think about. Um, but there are also uh, some, I mean, I, I went back and counted how many people had tweeted out links to so much cooking um, and it was like, a mm. lot. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. you, you, so there are also you, a lot of people who are seeking this stuff out. You're going through a revival. All right. I just need good time to say goodbye to both of you. I wish I had another goodbye. hour to talk to you. Ben Winters, author of 10 novels. We have him on anytime he writes anything, uh, <laughs> even if there's not a pandemic. And also thanks to Naomi Kritzer. We got to go. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang.